and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Venstaden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Today, Kobus, we're going to be talking about Chinese security operations in Africa, and this has really come to the fore in the past two or three weeks in light of some dramatic events that unfolded in Syria with the killing uh, of a Chinese hostage and a number of other events. Uh, so there's about six or seven key things that have kind of unpacked themselves in the two or three weeks prior to the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit that will take place in early December in Johannesburg, South Africa. Some of them may be tied to the FOCAC summit. Some are obviously coincidental. Kobus, why don't you start us off with uh, two or three of the key events, and I'll finish it out, and then we'll get into some of the details. This has been a really dramatic week, and a whole, a whole bunch of different events all kind of colliding on top of each other. Um, in the first place, um, a Chinese hostage um, named Fan Jinghui was executed by ISIS in Syria, um, and that led to a, whole, a flurry of social media calls for more security for Chinese overseas, which was then suppressed by censors in China. In the second place, um, three Chinese executives were killed in Mali um, in the, the Radisson Hotel siege in Bamako. Um, and they were from um, China Railway Construction Corporation, which, of course, is a big infrastructure provider in Africa. So that was, you know, kind of sad and horrible and ironic. Um, and then there was recently an interesting study that was that was posted by the Global Times that 60% of Chinese who are killed overseas end up are actually killed in Africa. So it, it positioned Africa as this, this kind of security issue for the Chinese government in dealing with Chinese who, who live and work overseas. So picking up on those three key milestones, which by themselves would be very interesting, but then the, 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 the Chinese Navy announced, or actually the Chinese Foreign Ministry announced, that the Chinese People's Liberation Army Navy will be setting up a logistics hub in Djibouti, its first overseas, now watch the language here, facility, logistics hub, uh, you know, it's not a military base, and we'll get into why that is the case, but that came out this week. And then also Foreign Minister Wang Yi gave a speech where he called for a united front in the war on terrorism, and that is actually very interesting in part because China has been really asking for more legitimacy and support in its own crackdown against Muslim extremists in China, mostly in Xinjiang, where it's been fighting uh, terrorism of its own kind. Now, again, this is a very, very sensitive issue in part because uh, Chinese control of western China in Xinjiang province uh, is highly controversial in reaction to their... Um, I'm trying to find the right language here because it's very, very complicated. They're very heavy footprint security-wise. Uh, authoritarianism, uh, the locking up of dissidents. Uh, there has been a reaction from the likes of ISIS, not to mention uh, Uyghur separatists as well. And so that is all part of this bigger global picture of Chinese foreign policy. When they call for a united front, they're also asking for reciprocal support from the West in their own domestic fight. And all of this, of course, is happening in the shadow of the forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit in Johannesburg that will happen in the next uh, few weeks. So what we're going to do is kind of take some of these key events and try to contextualize them, both in the context of FOCAC, but also in the broader Chinese foreign policy context. Kobus, let's start from the view of a in Africa. Again, one of the misperceptions about the Chinese is that they are kind of e equivalents to the Americans and the Europeans. So when you see hostages being killed by ISIS, hostages being killed by al-Qaeda, 
And, you know, the perception is that, well, you see, they're just like the Westerners. They're just as valuable to be killed like Westerners. So therefore, they must be like Westerners. What do you think the perception is, you know, particularly in the African media of these events and how people on the ground are receiving them? So far, I haven't seen very different coverage of the killing of Chinese people from the killing of other foreign nationals, um, in, in particular in the, the Mali siege. Um, I think what was interesting for me was that the, the you know kind of the the you know, experts are linked to the to the Chinese government. So you know kind of Chinese academics who sometimes occasionally speak for the Chinese government was making the point that Westerners are quote more valuable to you know kind of to militants in um, in Africa than Chinese people are. So they they seem to be trying to play down the threat. Um, in Africa itself. I haven't seen kind of massively different different kind of depictions of of these of these victims. Um, you know, kind of. I think it, it's it's more kind of played as uh, as proof of how many Chinese people are now actually in Africa. Um, but of course, you know, kind of the the discourse that that would make you know the the, the discourse that's happening in mili- in militant circles or in criminal circles are not going to be showing up in the media. Um, so I think, you know, kind of it, it does seem to indicate perhaps a push towards more targeting of Chinese people. Of course, people have, Chinese people have been targeted in Africa for a while. Quite some time. Um, and, and that brings yeah. up another issue is that about three weeks ago, and this was an article that we posted onto our Facebook feed, uh, the Chinese ambassador to Angola publicly stated, and this is kind of unusual for Chinese diplomats to kind of come out into the media and to say that if the Angolan government cannot bring the level of kidnapping under control, uh, that it could affect Chinese investment in the country. And so this, you know, in the broader context of Africa, let's kind of run down for people. Boko Haram in northern Cameroon took captive of, I think it was 30 Chinese that were eventually released in South Sudan and in Sudan proper. Uh, there were hostages taken over the past couple of years. And then and in obviously Egypt as well. in Egypt as well, Mali, uh, three uh, executives uh, were, were of state-owned industries were killed. And then we come to South Africa in Johannesburg, where you are, Cobus. And, and this is probably ground zero for uh, the, you know, where more Chinese die than anywhere else in, in Africa, in part because, not necessarily because they're Chinese, but just because Johannesburg and Cape Town have very high levels of crime. Uh, so in that 60% figure that was released by the Global Times newspaper in that article, uh, they did single out South Africa, and I thought that was very interesting as well. But it does reveal the vulnerability that the Chinese have in Africa, that number one, their people can be killed and taken hostage, but number two, the Chinese don't really have a whole lot of options if they want to try and stop this. Exactly. This is a, this is a you know it's a big problem, but I think it's also a problem that needs to be split actually because you know kind of China you know China has a security problem um, in Africa, but then you know the security problem in South Africa particularly comes down to to crime. Um, you know kind of so there's a there's a split between terrorism on the one hand and crime on the other, and you know kind of because the terrorists so frequently kidnap people for ransom. Um, you know, kind of that is a, a difficult kind of distinction to make. Um, but in South Africa, it, it seems to be mostly like people actually getting robbed. Um, and that is, I think, even harder to to protect people against than than terrorism is. Well, it certainly is impossible for the for anything that the Chinese government itself could do to correct the the crime situation. That doesn't seem to discriminate too much in Johannesburg. I mean, everybody is subject to. 
uh, to crime there. And so, mm-hmm. and I, I'm However, not sure the Chinese are being singled out any more than anybody else. To a certain extent, however, um, there is there is two ways that the Chinese are being um, singled out in in South Africa. In the first place, there there are perceptions that Chinese business people carry lots of cash, because there's also there are also perceptions which some of of my friends who do research on this say can, are true in some of the cases that the Chinese business people in South Africa are trying to stay outside of the South African tax system. They're trying to get their money to, you know, kind of, they keep their money in cash because they don't trust banks. And also they, you know, kind of once they bank the income, then they're much more subject to scrutiny from tax authorities. Um, So there is this perception that they carry more cash and that means they get robbed often, they get targeted often, and also, you know, kind of the, the robberies can turn very violent. Um, in the second place, that, that also means that they are actually targeted by the police um, in, in South Africa. So there is this kind of kind of dark joke, um, you know, kind of among Chinese people that they that they were driving wild Chinese, you know, kind of similar to African Americans in, you know, in, 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 in the US. So this is, this is the act of simply being Chinese in a public space draws un, draws kind of attention from the police and you kind of get shaken down. And that is true in Nairobi and other other kind of African African um, cities as well, where just simply being Chinese means you you get, uh, you know, attention. Um, also from the police and from criminals. Well, the diplomacy of all of this is fascinating to work to observe because even though we may not be able to distinguish between someone who was killed on the streets of Johannesburg for just pure criminal reasons and somebody who may be being taken hostage for either political or as part of another political drama, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda doesn't look like they targeted Chinese in, in, in Bamako. They targeted foreigners, uh, and the Chinese were just swept up in that. In either case, it presents a real problem for the Chinese government, and particularly Xi Jinping, because it makes him look impotent in the eyes of his domestic audience. And one of the things that was so fascinating uh, in the in the immediate aftermath of the killing of Fan Jinghui by ISIS was just this virulent nationalism that erupted online and how quickly people were saying, one, this is an act of war and we must go and attack. Again, I think overstating China's ability to actually do that. But two, to say, you know what, we're a great country now. You need to be able to protect our people. And in faraway places like Africa, thousands of kilometers away, it is impossible for the Chinese to do that in any meaningful way. And this also comes in, in one of the issues we talked about, you know, with, with places like Chad, which are remote even by African standards. <laughs> so in order to deploy security resources uh, to the continent, you would have to have a hub and then from there go even further into places like Chad and Mali, which are disconnected from those hubs. Those are enormous challenges. So I expect that there's a domestic political pressure that is rising on the Chinese leadership to do something about this. Now, please remember, Africa is not the only place where Chinese are are, are the subjects of crime and terrorism. Uh, There's even been in the United States, in Los Angeles, a number of killings of Chinese foreign students. Uh, You know, in the Middle East, there there are problems, as we saw with ISIS. So I just think we should put this in a broader context, both within the Chinese political structure and also globally. Now, do you think the the timing of the announcement of the base in Djibouti, do you think that was to a certain extent a response to some of this kind of nationalist fervor? Was it a response to the, the terrorism itself? 
do you think it, it like the timing of it happening right before Focac? Did that play a role? What, what do you think of the timing of, of this announcement? It's really easy to assign you know the timing to any one of the events that you talked about. Uh, but remember that the decision for the the logistics hub, and this is really very important because if we call it a base, um, that really is you know, and again, semantics here are important, but. I mean, the, journalists are calling it a base left well, and right. I know, but all, interestingly all the enough, except the New York Times. The New York Times, and let me just kind of see who the yeah, author was. Yeah, and except was. For, for CCTV. CCTV also calls it a, 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 well, a logistics hub. Jane Perlez and Chris Buckley, who are two of the best China correspondents in the business, really made a, you know, a very, very... Uh, you know, significant effort not to call it a base. And that's because I think they understand the, the sensitivity to this. And it's not, again, trying to be politically correct here. It's trying to kind of reflect the Chinese approach to this. Everybody else is calling it a base, and that probably is not accurate. The Chinese are building what appears to be as a logistics hub in Djibouti. And that logistics hub is under the pretext of supporting the anti-piracy operations off the coast of Somalia. However, what people are reading into this decision as the first overseas outpost or installation is that it is the part of a broader effort for the Chinese military to reform itself as in an effort to do force projection. And this is consistent with what they're doing in the South China Sea, but with the deployment of aircraft carriers, with new long-range submarines, with a re-kind of evaluation of their long-range nuclear arsenal. And it is the ability to protect their interests globally beyond just the immediate border region, which has been the focus of the Chinese military for the past 50 years. So the timing of this, while it might come coincidentally right before FOCAC and with all these other terrorism incidents, I suspect is much more driven by domestic military politics than it is anything to do with those other issues. And so when Xi Jinping made the announcement of the base, well, he didn't make the announcement, uh, the foreign ministry did, but she made an announcement of a restructuring of the Chinese military uh, to have a lighter, uh, more technologically driven, and also including force projection. That's what I think drove the timing of this far more than what we see on the ground in Africa. One of the things that, that struck me about the Djibouti um, Bay, well, logistics hub, is um, the way that it is also connected to to a railway and a port expansion, and you know, kind of the, the way that it fits into infrastructure provision that China is doing in East Africa generally, um, and you know, kind of so the diplomat a few hours ago posted an interesting article where they where they talked about how one belt one road is increasingly going to present a whole bunch of security challenges for China, you know, kind of because it's running through very volatile areas in Central Asia. Um, and I was wondering, do you think this this kind of a logistics hub in, in Djibouti is essentially the far end of the, of or uh, you know, kind of the, the first sign of, of what the security angle of One Belt, One Road might look like? This you know, kind of integration of security and infrastructure. You know, Ian Bremer, who's the president of the Eurasia Group, which is a geopolitical and strategic consultancy, and I follow him on LinkedIn and Facebook and whatnot. And one of the things that he said in his past books and in recent interviews 
is that unlike the United States, China has a global grand strategy. And that global grand strategy takes the form of the One Belt, One Road. And, and that is, you know, the United States right now, we don't know what the country stands for. You know, under the Bush administration, it was about the expansion of democracy and liberty, you know, the freedom agenda. Obviously, in the Cold War, it was, you know, it was, in the, con- it was the conflict with the Soviets. But under the Obama administration, the American foreign policy doesn't have kind of a vision of a grand strategy. But One Belt, One Road is exactly that. And tied to One Belt, One Road, so says Ian Bremmer, is geopolitics, it's economics, and now it's going to, there's a security component to it. I suspect that Djibouti is very much part of the infrastructure and that grand strategy that's designed to protect those oil lanes. That's the sea lane, the maritime silk road that's going to take oil and goods through the Arabian Peninsula into the Indian Ocean, around the peninsula of India, and up into the South China Sea, back to China. Now, here's what's interesting. When you talk to Chinese academics and scholars about who are they going to try and protect this, these sea lanes from, they will tell you, uh, you know, and this is, this is just rich with irony. You as a, as a Japan scholar will love this. They will, they will talk to you about, obviously, the threats of piracy and of asymmetric terrorism. That's one. You know, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Somali pirates, you know, those, 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 those kind of, you know, asymmetric forces. But they also put the United States in there. And one of the justifications for the base or the logistics hub in Djibouti was to protect the freedom of navigation of, of, uh, of Chinese vessels in that part of the world. The irony of that, of course, is that's what the Americans are using as their justification for intervention in the South China Sea to confront the Chinese, which again is freedom of navigation and, and open navigation on the, on the seas in the South China Sea. So they're using in some ways all of this against each other. And the Chinese are very concerned that the United States itself, if it got into a conflict with China in, say, the South China Sea, could now leverage those sea lanes in the Indian Ocean to cut our oil off. And so the ability to force project into the Indian Ocean is very important as a challenge to the Americans as well. In their yeah, and I mean, and, and then at the same time, it's also you, you find this interesting kind of major power, you know, simmering major power conflict um, in in Djibouti itself, you know, because, of course, the American um, Camp Le Monnier is there. The French um, are there. And the American... The, the and Americans the Japanese have, are there, too. And the Japanese are there, and the French are there. So, I mean, you know, kind of, it's, the again, this kind of weird precedent for, you know, kind of for Chinese expansion into the world is the fact that also, you know, Japan has a similar kind of non-intervention peace, you know, constitution, which is now going to change. Um, and, you know, kind of, but it, 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 with that constitution, they somehow found a way to, around the constitution, to, to also have their own logistics base in, in Djibouti. Um, but now. But you there's know, a difference, with, though, um, which is, I think the, and you can t- you're more of a Japanese expert than I am, but I don't think the Japanese are going to do force projection into the, in, no. into the Gulf of Aden. I think the Japanese no. are there as part of their commitment to the United Nations multinational operations, and that's, and that's it, full stop. Whereas the Americans are using Camp Le Monnier to launch drones into Yemen and into, into the Arabian, uh, you know, to the Gulf area, and, and also to kind of fight al-Qaeda and, 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 and terrorists in Africa as well. I, I, and I yes, can see yes, the Chinese yes. position there evolving over time, unlike the Japanese position, which I think was pretty much fixed as a multinational support operation. 
Yes, I think so. And even changes in the Japanese constitution, I think, won't change that. That's right. Gonna, it, they're, they're, they're dealing with the constitution to deal with, with Asia-Pacific issues, not not with kind of expansion into Africa, I think, yeah. at all. Um, but, you know, kind of what, what Djibouti then becomes this weird kind of like very close quarters for all of these major powers, kind of all cheek by jowl, you know, kind of. And I mean, the Americans have expressed worries in the past about, for example, the security of communications and freedom of movement and so on for, for American forces in Djibouti when there's, you know, kind of a Chinese hub slash base there. And it's so, so interesting to read the American press reaction to this. And, 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 you know, I've been following the U.S. press and how it's, you know, China's now being aggressive in, in Africa. China is now challenging the Americans in Africa. I mean, I think when you, you know, China benefits from being the boogeyman that few people really understand. And I suspect that when you actually see whatever they're going to put up in Djibouti, uh, it, my suspicion, I just, you know, I never overestimate the Chinese, but never underestimate them either. But at the end of the day, I have a feeling that the perception and the fears are far more exaggerated than the reality. And that logistics hub will probably be, be just a logistics hub in the, in the beginning. But yet, if you read the American press, it's like, oh, here comes the big bad panda ready to take on, you know, <laughs> ready to take on the Americans. So, but let's let's kind of now step back. This is coming at a at a critical time. All of these things, from ISIS to Al Qaeda to the base, uh, you know, to all of this, is coming at a time when China is going to hold its triennial summit in Africa with fifty plus heads of state. Clearly, Xi Jinping is under some domestic pressure to address security, but there isn't that much he can do. So what they've talked about are these broad platitudes of strengthening security in Africa, which good luck. I mean, in some parts, I mean, in Burundi, in Central African Republic, in Libya, you know, I can list probably 15 countries where there's nothing you're going to be able to do to strengthen security, not to mention the DR Congo, which for decades has had problems. So that's kind of, let's put all of their propaganda and, and kind of their their broad statements that they put, you know, mutual benefit, mutual cooperation, multilateralism, that's not going to change the security environment on the ground for much of the continent. So when the Chinese come to their counterparts in Johannesburg and want to talk about security, what do they say? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I, I have to admit, I'm not 100% sure. Um, one thing I think that 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 you know one one factor that shouldn't be left out of this discussion or probably might not be left out of the discussion is what's going to be the role of Chinese private security and oh. and multinational private security companies. You already see it in South Africa that all of these Chinese business people. Um, who sometimes get targeted by by South African criminals, they are now actually commissioning the private security agencies to actually patrol them and sometimes sometimes kind of accompany them, you know, kind of on on trips and you know so so they're buying security in South Africa and I think that 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 has been happening all over the continent and it's going to be very interesting to see whether that that gets scaled up, you know, kind of, and whether, whether kind of large-scale private security firms start playing a, a major role in this, because I can well imagine that it would make sense. You know, kind of, it, it, it would essentially be cheaper to do than, um, than you know, kind of bringing the, the military in. And it would draw on local expertise on a, on a kind of more organic way than the, the Chinese military would be able to. Okay. So I think that becomes a big question. But you bring up an interesting point. You, you're, you're kind of framing it as if there's a choice here. 
Maybe it's private security or maybe it's the military. People can choose. The problem for the Chinese is they actually don't have a choice. They are bound by their own political doctrine not to intervene in the internal affairs of other countries. So, you know, there was a lot of pressure for, the, for Xi Jinping during the, the ISIS hostage standoff to send in special, special forces or special ops to take out those ISIS people, even if they could, you know, good luck. But the problem is, is that that becomes an intervention in another country's internal affairs. Granted, ISIS is not a formal state, but there really isn't much precedent for the Chinese to do that. So I don't think that the Chinese have the policy options that the Americans and the French and the British do when they're confronted with the same type of challenge. So it brings up the second point is that if Chinese private security contractors are in places like Bamako protecting these railroad executives, um, that could actually be a middle ground for the Chinese uh, so that they don't have to have this confrontation with their own doctrine that is limiting them. But it's why I really love studying China-Africa so much because you're seeing... Africa challenged Chinese foreign policy today, right now, in ways that it isn't happening in other parts of the world. So from the, the you know, China will not establish any overseas bases to having a logistics hub in Djibouti, to China not intervening in the internal affairs of other countries, with China, of course, selling weapons and, and, and sending combat troops now as part of the UN force in South Sudan. That could be construed as an intervention in the internal affairs of another country. Now, to the next step, what you're talking about and raising the question is, could the Chinese eventually be pushed in Africa to actually send in a unilateral deployment if they confront a security threat that meets or threatens their national security interests, say, challenging oil supplies or a hostage situation that really forces Xi Jinping to take action like he would never do in anywhere else? So these are some of the questions that I think are going to come up. Most likely, Kobus, we won't see anything public uh, that's substantive coming out of FOCAC, in part because the agenda has been set. The Chinese are not very big fans of changing the agendas at the last minute. Security has not been a paramount con you know, concern for the Chinese in Africa for a long time. So I wouldn't expect, you know, as part of the final communique, to see anything meaningful. What's your, what's your reading just in terms of your forecast of where security will factor in at FOCAC? Yes, I tend to agree with you. I think it'll be downplayed. Um, you know, kind of be also, you know, the theme of FOCAC and also the, the running theme of all of the FOCAC um, summits is almost always some form of, of mutual benefit, you know, kind of mutual development, cooperation, friendliness. Yeah. Um, How so, much money you know, are you going to give us is really what the theme is. Exactly, exactly. You know, kind of so, so I think that will be the theme, the official theme here. What happens on the sidelines and to which extent, you know, kind of China is, you know, to which extent China would put any kind of pressure on, on African leaders in private conversation to to do something about the security issues um, that's another another question you know kind of but I think it'll be very interesting to see how, as, the, as the relationship develops and it becomes a fuller and fuller relationship the security issue is going to have to be addressed and the African side of that is going to have to be addressed as well because you know kind of as you the you know kind of the, the the discourse as a when when you mentioned the the discourse about how China is now challenging the U.S. in you know kind of in Africa, you can well imagine how that plays in Africa. You know kind of like I mean this this idea that you, that the continent is essentially someone else's backyard is obviously very problematic for Africans. But the the side question, the the related question of that then is, so what is the Africans actually going to be doing? You know kind of what what kind of enforcement and governance and security kind of 
security provision is, is Africa actually going to provide, especially if they want Chinese business to to beneficiate African minerals, to not just be extraction, but to actually do stuff here and make stuff here. They're going to have to step up and do something. Now, that's the key point. And here's my final point, is when the Chinese ambassador to Luanda is publicly coming out and pleading with the government to do something about the kidnapping or else Chinese investment may divert from Angola. That is a very important message that if I was an African policymaker, I would take very seriously. Because mm-hmm. if... Uh, if the Chinese start to recognize that certain countries or certain regions are just not hospitable to them, they will reallocate more and more of their investment to where they actually can operate. And so as we've seen a precipitous drop in Chinese investment from this year, from last year to this year, you know, between 40 and 80 percent, depending on the numbers you look at, uh, the competition for that Chinese investment may become very intense. And one of the delineating factors between whether the Chinese invest in country A or country B may in fact be security. So the, the African countries and policymakers and those communities have a vested interest in making sure that there, you know, is n- it, it is just perfect or as best as it can be. So that's my take on it. Listen, we have uh, exhausted. We could talk about this, this topic for, for hours. Unfortunately, we did try and get a guest on this, and there are a lot of great Chinese security thinkers out there. Uh, no one replied to our request, so I, I, I suspect that has something to do with FOCAC, that a lot of people are getting ready for the big summit. Uh, but we're going to try and bring on a guest in the future to kind of you know, dive deeper into this and to take some of the theories that we've brought to you today and, and kind of put them to a real test. Uh, because it is one of the most fascinating yet least understood, underexplored aspects of the Sino-African relationship, and I think it deserves a lot more attention. Uh, Kobus, if people want to follow what we're reading and writing and what we're doing these days, what's the best way for them to first stay in touch with us, but also then later on with you? Our Facebook page has, has grown into a big a big kind of China-Africa resource. So we, we curate a 24-hour stream of the newest China-Africa stories popping up on the internet. So um, you'll find that at, at uh, facebook.com slash China-Africa project. I'm also personally on Twitter at Stadnesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And since we're talking about a resource and FOCAC, uh, Kobus and I, together with the VITS China Africa Reporting Project, have put together a site that we're extremely proud of. And uh, and it's just gotten some great response. So again, just a little humble brag there. Uh, Reporting-FOCAC, that's reporting-focac.com. Uh, it's a site that's really designed to help journalists in covering the, the FOCAC summit, but even after FOCAC is well and done and the big communique with the massive check has been announced, um, it's a great resource because we've got you know comments from David Dollar, from Deborah Braudigam, from some other leading China scholars like Barry Soutman and, and Yen Hairong. Uh, we've got, you know, we debunk myths. We've got videos from leading experts, Chinese, African, uh, you know, all over. So I think it's just a fantastic resource, reporting-focac.com. If you're a student or you're new to China-Africa studies, it's a great, great resource for you to tap into. If you want to follow what I'm reading and writing these days, the best way to stay in touch is Twitter over at eolander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Also, every Monday, Copas and I put out a newsletter of the top China-Africa 
kind of headlines, four or five stories, not too overwhelming, and uh, it's the best of the week. You can subscribe either on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project, or just head over to our website at chinaafricaproject.com, and you can listen to our podcast and uh, follow our Twitter feeds and get the latest blog posts that we put up there. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.